Welcome to the Commentary Magazine Daily Podcast. Today is Wednesday, February 23rd, 2022. I'm John Podhortz, the editor of Commentary. With me as always, executive editor Abe Greenwald. Hi, Abe. Hi, John. Associate editor Noah Rothman. Hi, Noah. Hi, John. Christine Rosen is out for the rest of the week. Joining us today, commentary contributing editor, New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning columnist, uh, and author of an important piece uh, in the fall of 2021 in commentary that we are going to describe today for its prophetic qualities, the post-Pax Americana world, Brett Stevens. Hi, Brett. Thank you for joining us. John, good to see you. In light of the events of the past 24, 48 hours, and indeed the last two or three months, um, the uh, you also have a column today in the New York Times in which you discuss how... Um, nation build us uh, uh, statesmanship and sort of world leadership often stems from intangibles like whether you believe that you should do what you're going to do and whether you believe that the things that you want to do are going to bear fruit that will make you a world historical figure uh, and that this is a belief that Putin has about himself and that this is a belief that America has lost about itself uh, over the last I don't know, 12, 15 years, uh, tying that together with the idea that basically no one in America or no major leader in America seems uh, committed to the idea that it is the responsibility, obligation, and indeed, let's say, the uh, privilege of the United States to be the leader of a Pax Americana, a uh, the guarantor of a world order that allows um, uh, freedom and free markets and the free exchange of goods and services, not only to survive, but to thrive, that we find ourselves at this pass right now where you have the West with uh, with a lot of uh, harumphing, but no real moral suasion and force behind their view that what is going on in Ukraine cannot stand. And Putin uh, basically now invoking ancient Russian nationalism uh, to explain why it is that he is going into uh, why he is essentially going to try to take over Ukraine. Not just that, you know, he has to save captive Russian populations or that Ukrainians are treating these places uh, badly, but that there never was a Ukraine. Ukraine is the seat of historic and ancient Russia. And that uh, it should always, that there should never have been a Ukraine, that it was a failure of Lenin's and Khrushchev's that Ukraine even existed. So he is now, he is now backing off any tactical reasons why he needs to go to war and even strategic reasons why he needs to go to war into sort of ideological nationalistic reasons he needs to go to war uh what do you what do you make then let me say of noah's theory that russia as a declining power uh is it is this is a mark of russia's decline given that you say that Putin believes himself to be a world historical figure, is there such a thing as a nation being naturally in decline, or is that just something that nations impose upon themselves? And that Putin is basically asserting Russia's centrality in the universe and is succeeding, at least for the present moment. Yeah, I mean, look, decline is a function of what you're looking at, right? And if uh, Noah's argument, and he'll fill me in, I'm sure, is that Russia is a declining demographic uh, or economic force. That's true and has been true for a long time, at least for the past uh, uh, 30 years. Life expectancy in Russia is short. 
the birth rate is is low. And as I noted in my column this morning, um, when was the last time you went out and bought a Russian car or a Russian smartphone or downloaded a Russian movie uh, on onto your onto your tablet? I mean, you 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 never do that. The only thing that Russia produces is energy, minerals, and um, second-rate military uh, equipment. Uh, I, I should say that I downloaded a Russian show. I saw an hour of a Russian show about uh, Rasputin being a um, kind of like a detective who solves crimes. So okay. uh, on Netflix. Okay. Well, so right. anyway, I, 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 just my to. My okay. thesis yes. collapses, John. <laughs> CSI, St. Petersburg. Of, uh, how was it, by yeah, the way? It was pro. Uh, it was really bad, um, but interesting because, of course, it had it had settings and stuff that you really don't see on TV. But um, pro pro Rasputin is is what I'm is what I'm saying. Well, that's another sign of of <laughs> Russia of, of of what worries us these days about <laughs> Russia. But look, and and the larger point, someone once wrote, a historian once wrote that in Russia, territorial expansion has always been a mark of decline in some some sense. On the other hand, that's of little solace to the Ukrainians. It was uh, of little solace to to people in Kazakhstan who got bloodied by uh, repression that, that Putin helped abet. It's going to be of little solace to Navalny in prison. And it's certainly going to be of no solace to NATO if Putin continues to have ambitions that go beyond Ukraine. And this is a material point. Um, anyone who thinks that what's happening now is about Ukraine is deceiving themselves. This is part of Putin's plan to reconstitute in large part the territory of the Soviet Union. I think a kind of Anschluss with Belarus is now um, uh, likely, um, perhaps not inevitable, but but uh, uh, likely. I think Putin will set his sights on other former Soviet states or just other former um, uh, uh, friendly uh, uh, friendly states, um, uh, Warsaw Pact uh, nations. It could be. Um, and, and he's going to uh, continue to make inroads because he has a set of advantages, which I spelled out in, in today's column. Um, there, are, there are some asymmetries between him and his adversaries in the United States and the West, which all play in, in his favor. He wants Ukraine more than we wanna, he wants Ukraine for Russia more than we want Ukraine for uh, the West. He's prepared to expend more political capital and pay more attention to it than, than we are. Um, he wants to change a geopolitical order. We want to maintain a status quo. And then the final point, John, that you were, you were getting at is this issue of, of self-belief. I mean, a historian might say that his theories about Ukraine are, are ahistorical or largely uh, mythical. Um, I have news for you. Uh, a lot of the great conquerors in history um, also made history, conquered territory, changed borders, uh, expanded expanded their empires based on kind of mythological concepts about their their past. So it's that quality of self belief he has of that belief that his role, his destiny, is to consolidate and reestablish. Russia as a superpower, at least as a great power, 
that is driving him forward at precisely the moment when the West has lost um, basic belief in itself as a force of good in the world. So I think Putin knows all this. And I think that's what's driving him along with one final factor, which is his calculation that in the Biden administration, he does not face a particularly fierce or skillful opponent. Okay, so briefly, because the theory had been introduced, let me articulate it. So <clears throat> the idea here, there's on the, in the online space, there's a fierce debate, particularly on the right, over whether or not Russia is really a prominent threat, a predominant threat rather to American interests, especially vis-a-vis -vis a rising China. So the theory holds that the declining power is a more acute threat because it is aware of its declining position. It knows it has a limited window to secure the advantages in its region that it needs to secure in order to preserve its its status, and therefore it's more risk prone, as opposed to a rising power, which knows it has time on its side. And once until you appro approach the Thucydides trap, where it's sort of ambiguous as to whether or not it could win an outright conflict with the hegemon, namely us, then it's 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 a it's something you can put off in the back burner. How do how do nations measure decline? Is it material? Is it ideational? There's still a lot of debate in international relations theory around that. But Putin is under no illusions about where his position is because he's obsessive over the, the collapse of the Soviet Union. So you can assess pretty firmly that he believes his is a nation in decline, in part because he measures success vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet Union, which is long gone. And that's why all this commentary around uh, Vladimir Putin as a madman, as somebody who's irrational, who can't be dealt with, is really off base because he's making perfectly rational calculations, assessing a cost-benefit analysis, as Brett just demonstrated, both at home, the near abroad, and taking the measure of, of Joe Biden in Washington, um, he's making a perfectly rational risk calculation to roll the dice on this. Uh, I think he's probably met with more resistance in the West than he anticipated, but the idea that this is prolonged resistance is, is a, really a subject of debate, um, especially if we get into energy policy. You can, he, he's banking on Europe breaking under the strain of uh, truncated uh, energy exports to, to Europe. And that's not a bad bet to make. I mean, we've spent 100 years now uh, confusing uh, economic power with geopolitical power for understandable reasons, right? Uh, Germany and Japan were both uh, two, two of the three uh, most advanced countries in the world in terms of military technology when they decided to launch their efforts to, you know, sort of take over the world in the way that they launched them. And as Andrew Roberts says, you know, it was a very, it was, it was by no means a foregone conclusion that the West would win the win World War II. I mean, particularly Europe. Um, uh, Nazi Germany was just better uh, than than the European countries were. It was it was wealthier? It was more technologically advanced. But in history, history tells, and so and we we then became the world's foremost economic and military power. And so we have this kind of determinist thing, right? It's like, well, Russia is falling to put, you know, Russia is falling apart, and so you know, it's uh, not going to be strong enough to handle this. It's going to cost too much money and all of that. And that is really not the way the world you know the world constantly throughout the world history uh you know forces out of nowhere come and like overrun more advanced civilizations simply out of uh, sheer either numbers or uh, good uh, strategic uh, smarts or savagery or whatever but i mean you know the uh, the, the 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 mongols weren't you know the mongols weren't 
as good <laughs> as other as other civilizations were. And we like have this delusion. It's like, well, as you say, you know, yeah, R- Russia's declining. It's got a low birth rate. It's got, you know, its economy is smaller than 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 Italy's. It's got, uh, you know, it's got terrible alcoholism problems and this and that and the other thing. That doesn't mean that it can't dominate the politics of the world. So uh, to borrow a line from a bumper sticker from the 1970s or 80s, you know, one nuclear bomb can ruin your whole day. And um, uh, in, in Russia's case, it's what, 1,500 or so strategic weapons. So the idea of Russia as a regional power, which is what Barack Obama described it as, is um, a fundamentally stupid idea, right? I mean, a country that has the power to blow up the world, no matter what the size of its economy, uh, is, is not uh, a power to be trifled with. North Korea has an economy that's probably smaller than uh, 10 square blocks of John Podhoritz's neighborhood, <laughs> right? Uh, Iran, I once looked this up, has an economy roughly the size of uh, greater metro Philadelphia, if you include Wilmington. And yet Iran is capable of holding an entire region of the world hostage to, to, uh, uh, to its ambitions. You know, one point that Noah touched on that I, I, I really irritates me is this idea that we should stop worrying about Russia because our principal threat is China, which is a little bit like saying we should stop worrying about Japan because our principal threat is Germany. And the idea is particularly, I think, misjudged given that um, the uh, the, uh, the world that was created in 1972 by Nixon's visit to China um, and the de facto U.S.-Chinese alliance against the Soviet Union has now been reversed. We're back in 1949 when Russia and China are on the same side. The difference is that this time China is the senior partner and Russia is uh, the junior partner. But nonetheless, there's a partnership and we don't have the luxury of having to say, well, this is the main threat so we can think less seriously about the, the, the secondary threat, particularly because as I think Noah aptly points it out, Russia may be the junior partner, but at this moment, it is the most aggressive partner. Um, and it is a partner that per- perhaps because Putin suspects Russia's in long-term decline, is the one that's prepared to take the greatest risks in order to shore up its geopolitical position and gain uh, gain various advantages. So, you know, we're living in a fantasy world in which we think that we have the luxury, or we we will be living in a fantasy world if we think we have the luxury to pick and choose the um, foreign policy crises that threaten us or that materially affect our interests. And in this case, what happens in Ukraine and what Putin is able to get away with and the caliber and the quality of the West's response is going to directly impact what happens in Taiwan, whether it's in six months or a year from now, because the Chinese are studying America's responses to the crisis in Ukraine and saying, well, if the worst that the United States will do uh, against Russia vis-a-vis its invasion of Ukraine is sanctions, well, why shouldn't they operate similarly with Taiwan? We are not treaty bound to fight for Taiwan's freedom. We are only treaty bound to provide them with defensive uh, armaments. And that's, that's something the Chinese are well aware of. 
You know, uh, in regard to that argument, and it, it bothers me too. I I have a lot of doubts that uh, were we uh, as a country to shift our focus to to to, to not concern ourselves so much with Russia, and then let's say focus on uh, China as a foreign policy threat. There's always a taking our eye off the ball argument that would that can come up, right? So no matter no matter because because it's it's not based in actual tactical or strategic thinking. It's a sentiment about how the U.S. always gets it wrong, and how there's always a need to distract. So I so it doesn't it wouldn't even matter if 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 the the critics who said that we're focusing on the wrong thing had their way, there'd be there'd be a, a new wrong thing that, that they would accuse us of of, of doing it, on the question of the declining powers and 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 the threat. I think there's another dimension here or, or two others. Um, one is that global bad actors um, are often sort of uh, regularly ill serve their own people, whether they're on the decline or uh, just sort of in a prolonged state of di disrepair, it's, it's, it's part of what makes them dangerous. Um, it's, it's sort of, in a sense, it, it, their, their, their GDP doesn't really uh, necessarily enter into how much of a threat they, they are to others in, in that sense. They're, they're happy to deprive their own uh, at, at the, at the, at the, in order to uh, uh, galvanize against uh, outward well, enemies. Well, they and, don't necessarily think that they're depriving. That's part of the sure. self-belief. That's right. And if well, Putin and, leaves Russia in a position in which it has become the dominating country in Central Europe, he doesn't think that the sacrifices that the Russian people are going to pay for uh, you know, uh, doing doing this, what we look at as a military misadventure, that those sacrifices will be worth it. Russia will be more powerful. Countries will kowtow to it more. Germany will come back, slinking back to try to start the Nord Stream pipeline again because Russia is more powerful, not less. It will feel less able to withstand it and all of that. So uh, he's not looking at this as though he is punishing the Russian people. He's looking at it as though he is leading them into a brighter and more glorious future. And what's more, he's right. I mean, he's right in this sense, which is that the, if Ukraine goes well, Russia's ability to work its will on not only the former Soviet republics or captive nations, but on the countries on its border, particularly Poland, will be... Not, it won't be absolute, but it will be much more, it'll much more favorable. But th that, but the self belief question brings up the second point, which is that whether or not Russia is in decline, uh, Putin's power is not in decline. Um, it's 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 to the dismay of many of us who years ago enjoyed the anti-Putin protests and and saw these sort of large numbers of people coming out. Um, He's popular, and I think that is a that is a more indicative and dangerous metric than 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 how he's doing for the for for the country. I mean, why wouldn't he be popular in this sense? Which is that he is offering, as I say, even in the crazy speech, and everyone's like, "Oh my God, he's a crazy, demented person," talking about how there never should have been a Ukraine and all of that. Um, that speech was crazy, like a fox, because he is offering the Russian people a messianic mission. 
he is offering them a transcendent purpose. This is a country that has been mired in depression, as 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 shown by these decline, incredibly low birth rates and incredible rates of alcoholism and all that. They now have an, ev- an evangelical purpose, which is to restore the greatness that was Russia or the Soviet, whatever you want to call it. That's that's a that's a thing that a leader can do. And maybe they don't believe him. Maybe his maybe his popularity is illusory, and everybody knows he's a liar and is just a kleptocrat stealing everything. But you, you can see how that's something that would be attractive. Okay, but know, there's a, there's a uh, you know one of the one of the advantages of growing up uh, abroad is that it allows you to see America in all of its parochialism and provincialism. I mean, there is this conceit at the highest levels of the American foreign policy establishment that other people want what we want, right? Uh, Smartphones and good quality uh, uh, downloadable TV at high speeds and cars that work. And there's a wonderful line from my favorite philosopher, the Ayatollah Khomeini, um, uh, who said, you know, we didn't have a revolution to cut the price of melons, um, which is to say economic well-being was not the purpose of a revolutionary movement that aimed to restore uh, Iran to a uh, theocracy in which some notion of virtue rather than of efficiency was at the heart of the regime's purposes, right? And Americans have a hard time grasping this. I mean, I remember when uh, the JCPOA was signed in 2015, a lot of the Obama people said, well, you know, Iran will take all the money that it's getting from sanctions relief to uh, provide better uh, daycare for, you know, overworked Iranian mothers or, you know, to improve the quality of sanitation in um, uh, some of its provincial cities. No, Iran used all of that money to shore up its position in Syria and utterly crush the insurgency in, uh, uh, in Syria and send ballistic missiles and drones to Houthis who could then deploy them against Saudi Arabia and the UAE and so on. So we have this idea that other nations operate according to the same logic and value system that Americans do, right? which is a, just a, a, like a nonsense idea. And what's amazing to me is that this is an idea that's often put forward by um, Western liberals who turn around and then complain about how, you know, we Americans just don't understand that other cultures are different and, you know, the marvelous tapestry of complexity and so forth and so on. But the simple reality is that I think a lot of Russians are attracted to the idea of a nationalist purpose are attracted to the restoration of a sense of pride and honor. When you talk about decline, ask yourself, decline next to what? Because I think a lot of Russians measure their position in the world today next to where they were when Boris Yeltsin was drunkenly leading the country into a ditch, right? And into what they saw as a series of humiliations. Uh, So by that standard, Russia has not declined. Russia is now respected feared, uh, its army is modernized, or at least large parts of its military forces are modernized. Um, 
and uh, and everyone is dancing to Vladimir Putin's tune. He 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 calls the music here. So uh, we are we are deluding ourselves when we say, well, Russia is really just a upper volta with nuclear weapons, as Helmut Schmidt said. Because I return to my principal theme: one nuclear bomb can ruin your whole day. Okay, so I I agree with most of that. However, material considerations on the on the lower level among the people uh, are not something that. Uh, a regime should dismiss. You, you said Iran. When, when is Iran destabilized most on the ground levels? When the price of fuel e explodes, when the price of eggs goes up, that's when we see riots in the streets. So material considerations do matter. And this is something that I have a problem with on the nationalist right, because they articulate, Brett, very much the mission as you define it. And are debating them about this sort of stuff is like is like having a debate with a first year philosophy textbook because they're never talking about the material considerations on the ground that you talk to when you have a conversation with average Ukrainians or average Russians. It's a profound misreading of the imbalance of forces in Russia's region arrayed against Moscow's interests. Most of this crisis since November has been predicated on the idea that the United States could gift Russia a sphere of influence that it could not otherwise secure militarily, diplomatically or economically. They do not have the kind of influence that we perceive them to have in the region, in part because this messianic mission resonates within a particular political caste inside of Russia and not anywhere else. I think it's important. Uh, Brett's got to go in a minute, but I, I, I want to explore briefly, and then we'll get back to it after, after the break. I want to explore this idea on the right, um, which is that people do people in America are just, you know, don't care about Ukraine and they don't care about all this. This is most interestingly articulated by 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 J.D. Vance, the man who has uh, seen it necessary to slash his IQ uh, by 50 points in order to run fourth uh, in the Senate contest in Ohio, but saying, yeah, nobody cares about Ukraine. Nobody cares about Ukraine. Well, First of all, we have the first polling that suggests that only 19% of Americans say they don't care about Ukraine. They don't care. They don't care what we do about Ukraine. Uh, it breaks up. 40% think that we should impose sanctions. 23% say we should be sending weapons. 23% say that we should be committing U.S. forces in some fashion to the defense of Ukraine. Not, not that they want to be have boots on the ground but that they want some kind of U.S. involvement in retarding Putin's ambitions in Ukraine. So that's like 80-20. So it turns out one way or another, Americans care about stopping Putin in Ukraine, which is a larger number than I would have anticipated. But secondly, you know, um, Ukraine, we may not care about Ukraine, but you know, Russia cares about Ukraine and the destabilizing events that are going to happen here, the American people are going to care about. And most interestingly, uh, if the international situation worsens and becomes more uh, unstable, they are going to punish politicians who acted like ostriches. They're not going to be happy with the way people dealt with this in 2022. And the real question for the Republican Party is, is it going to reestablish itself as the party of strength, right? That's uh, Democrats. I said this yesterday. Democrats are weak on crime and they're weak on foreign policy. That was the Republican message of the 1970s. And it blew a hole in the Democrats that the Democrats have only recently healed. And now they're going right back into the hole, right? Crime's rising at the exact same time that inflation is rising. And we are showing 
a lack of constancy or seriousness of purpose when it comes to international destabilization. But it's you not know, cost free. A lot of a lot of things um, are things you miss and notice only when they're gone. One of them is price stability. Another of them is our safe streets. And a third is um, a world which is not overrun by um, rampaging dictators operating on personal mythologies, uh, threatening not just distant foreign countries, but um, core American interests too. And I think the Biden administration now is on track to lose, uh, lose all three. People ask me, why do we need Pax Americana when it has so many problems? And it's a little bit like asking, why do you need your job when you, it gives you so many headaches? Well, it's better to have one than not have one. Um, and that's, that's what we're fast on the road to, to discovering. Brett, before you so go, Brett. yeah, he, he's got to run, but I do want to get this real, real quick in because this is something that's consuming me. Joe Biden has talked briefly in asides, digressing about the costs to, American, to the American public, the pain they will endure if we really have to go into an economic war with Russia, which would probably mean truncated fuel imports, which would increase inflation, already a serious headache to this administration. Does this administration have the backbone to weather a political backlash? Because as much as Americans may be philosophically interested in containing Russia and punishing Russia, will they want to absorb those costs indefinitely? And will it result in a backlash that Joe Biden is afraid to incur? We will find out, Noah, soon enough. <laughs> Brett Stevens. Thanks for joining us. As I said to you, you're like you're like the guy, you're like the big star on the Carson show who to show his power leaves in the middle after his segment is over. And so he doesn't have to sit through the comic and the singer. So yeah, we're the comic I have, and the I singer have a medical uh, appointment. I have to get to. So okay. Well, much. well, please uh, enjoy, enjoy your medical appointment and we will talk to you soon. Okay. Great to see you. Be well. Okay. So uh, we will uh, take this moment to talk to you about uh, Bull and Branch, Noah's favorite sheets. No one wants to cut corners on what's important. Few things matter more than a good night's rest. Those Bull and Branch signature sheets come in seven beautiful colors in all sizes. Twin up to California King. They're made to a higher standard. 100% organic cotton ethical production. Attention to every detail. Nothing worse than fitted sheets that don't fit. And Noah, you've told us that Bull and Branch's 17-inch deep-fitted sheets and labeled sides help you make your bed beautifully every time. The little things make a big difference. Bolin Branch gives you a fair price, best of all, plus a 30-day risk-free risk trial with free shipping and returns. It's the focus of quantity over quality. Excuse me, the focus of quality over quantity. There are no inflated thread counts here. More isn't always better. What you get from them are sheets that are not too hot, not too cool, perfect year-round, buttery, soft, lightweight, organic cotton, and a classic sateen weave for sheets that get softer over time. So experience the best sheets you've ever felt at bowlandbranch.com. Get 15% off your first set of sheets. When you use promo code commentary checkout, that's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, promo code commentary. And let me also talk to you about Novo. Fortune favors the bold, the strong, the brave. For your business to break out of anything holding you back, you need business checking as brave as you are. And that's why we're introducing Novo Business Checking. 
powerfully simple business checking. And unlike the traditional banking model, Novo has no minimum balances, no transaction limits, no hidden fees. Instead of a one-size-fits-all approach, Novo is customized to your business to save you time and free up cash flow with seamless integrations to Stripe, Shopify, QuickBooks Online, and more. Sign up for Novo for free and join the community of over 150,000 fearless small businesses who found the customizable business checking solution that admires their bravery. Sign up for your free business checking account right now at novo.co slash commentary. Plus, Commentary Magazine listeners get access to over $5,000 in perks and discounts. Go to novo.co slash commentary to sign up for free. Novo.co slash commentary. Novo Platform Inc. is a fintech, not a bank. Banking services provided by Middlesex Federal Savings, FA, member FDIC. Terms and conditions apply. Uh, Biden gave a speech yesterday afternoon. Um, and uh, as Noah said, he said uh, there's going to be pain. Um, of course, uh, there's going to be pain and there could be purpose. Uh, Biden doesn't understand how to articulate the purpose and his party doesn't really believe in the purpose. So there'll be pain without purpose. The purpose is we are defending and protecting the world order. We are making the world a better place by making sure that Putin doesn't make it a worse place. We are, um, we are making sure that the things that allowed the United States to become the most uh, prosperous and most powerful country on earth uh, do not desic desiccate and fall by the wayside as we are humiliated by this upper volta with nuclear weapons. Uh, that is the way you deal with the pain. You, 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 as, as even in a weird way, as a kind of a bizarro image of Putin, that is to say, we say we're doing this because this is what we do. This is what America is. This is what I am, I am talking to you about because it's not just about some idea of making sure that international law isn't violated. Abe. But Biden's got a massive conceptual conflict here because he's still reeling and the country is still reeling from the message that we're getting out of our foreign entanglements. We are no longer the country that sticks its nose in other people's business. Uh, we are ending our forever wars and it's a great thing. And we're going to focus on on all the problems we have at home, similar to, to Obama's uh, message of nation building at home. He's got to turn around on a dime and say, it is America's role to save the world from Russian depredations. We are going to protect uh, democracies and allies uh, with or without treaty obligations, and it's going to cost us because it's the right thing to do, and, and we're here to keep the world safe. He has put him, I mean, this is the problem. He's made himself hostage to fortune because he established this nonsensical idea that if the U.S. gets out, uh, if the U.S. retreats, everything will be nice and lovely. Very practically, what Joe Biden has said will constitute the pain you and I will feel if we engage in this campaign is at the pump, is in energy prices, which leaves open the prospect of sanctioning Russian energy exports. And I'm not sure they're willing to go that far. I hope they are because it's the only thing Russia would feel and Russia would respond in kind and reciprocity. And Joe Biden says, we're taking measures to limit the pain that you will feel. What measures? A serious American response to an energy crisis would be to remove the restrictions unnecessarily imposed on American energy capacity. 
retract the executive orders, the day one Joe Biden executive orders that restricted the exploration and exploitation of domestic deposits on, on federal lands, restore executive funding for agencies that quote subsidize fossil fuel producers. So if, if an ex executive agency thinks it's subsidizing a fossil fuel producer with some sort of spending, it can't do that. Get rid of that. Crash course the development of new export capacity and refinement capacity. Promote speculative investment in new wells that has already uh, declined as a result of declining oil prices. Look, the market's getting back. Try to promote that. Pro produce tax, uh, tax advantages for producers who develop these wells. A serious energy component to American foreign policy to compete with Russia's declared effort to squeeze uh, Europe. Dmitry Medvedev, uh, the prime minister of Russia, was on, you know, jumped on Twitter saying, hey, welcome to a brave new world where Europeans are going to be paying two uh, euros for one uh, cubic meter of natural gas. Yeah, that's a terrifying prospect. That could really break the alliance. The Joe Biden administration should get to work trying to relieve that pressure, and they should have done it yesterday if they were serious. That is a very important point. There is an answer, by the way, to Abe's extraordinarily articulate expression of rage at what at what um, Biden did in Afghanistan. But I mean, he could say, I don't know how you say it like this, but Afghanistan is Afghanistan. It is a faraway country of which we know little. We are talking here about France. We are talking about Germany. We are talking about Italy. We are talking about Spain. We are talking about Great Britain. We are talking about the countries that are our friends, that we love, that we love to visit, that we uh, that we admire, that we support, that, you know, they're like our brothers, and we're not going to let our brothers come under attack and assault this way. That's essentially what NATO is as a matter of emotional theory, right? It was the it was the creation of a family of nations so that an attack on one is an attack on everybody. Now, granted, Ukraine is not part of NATO, and this whole thing is about Ukraine not or being part of NATO or not. We would be doing this not for the purposes of defending Ukraine. We would be doing it for the purposes of defending NATO and defending our friends and defending our alliances and defending everything that we love on this earth. Now, granted, there are nihilists all over America, as there always have been, nationalist isolationists who don't like anybody else and don't like anywhere. And what's more, don't like America either, for that matter, and don't believe in defending anything because what's the point? Because everything sucks. Um, and, you know, they're actually a pretty soft target, those people. Like, you can, you can sisters, you can use them to sister soldier yourself and lever their, lever their ugly, uh, you know, small-minded, narrow-minded, narrow-worlded view uh, to say, I, we are more capacious than that. We are, big, we are larger-hearted than that, and we have more needs than they uh, appreciate because our entire civilization is dependent upon that Pax Americana that we are now throwing into the garbage can if we don't make it clear to Putin that there that the cost that he is that he is incurring upon himself by doing this is going to be so high that uh, the Russian people will eventually say, "I don't really like this. I don't really like that we did this. This was not a great idea. Let's not do it again. You know, we'll do it in Ukraine, maybe, but we're not. You know, we're not going. We're not. We're not looking going abroad in search of monsters to destroy. So, I, I mean, there is a way he cannot do it. We now know who Joe Biden is. He is a very limited. He is a very small-minded. He does not have a. He does not have a positive vision 
for anything. I think this is, I think, Abe's, this is your great, you know, uh, observation about him over, over the last year, that the only time he shows passion, the only time he shows fire and force is when he feels cornered or when he feels criticized. He has no either ability or appetite to say, I am doing X because it is good. I came in to the presidency with the idea that I will leave America and the world much better than I found it. And I am facing enemies who want to make it worse and they will not stand and I will not rest. It's more like, oh yeah, you're a wise guy talking to me about inflation, huh? He says to Lester Holt or Caitlin Collins or whatever reporter has the temerity to make some mild intervention about something that he did that may not have had the best consequences. So the idea that he is going to transmute himself into a larger figure at the age of 79 is impossible to believe. And therefore, we are going to have a real world test of whether or not the United States institutionally or the United States simply as an entity or as an idea or as an experiment rejects his approach here and kind of forces, bubbles up an approach that he can't resist. Um, and you know that's sort of what happened with Carter. You know, Carter in the in the late seventies uh, was forced to say he had been wrong about Soviet communism. He had been wrong about a lot of things. He now needed a defense buildup. He started stuff that Reagan then accelerated. Uh, it's actually another weird parallel is David Dinkins, mayor of New York City. Rudy Giuliani did not come into office, you know, totally without resources. Dinkins facing the crack wave and the murder wave and all of that actually did increase spending on cops and police departments. Then he 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 ruined it by siding with criminals over the, over the police department and ruining morale and spirit. But but um, there was a there in in each of these cases there was a kind of bureaucratic understanding that something needed to change. But they just didn't have it in them as leaders to change in the right way along with it. And so the horror here is that it's February of 2022 and and Biden will be in office for one month shy of three years, uh, the way things are going. So, um, well, I mean, things have to get worse, I think, for for that sort of uh, revelation to hit. And, uh, you know, we're talking about Ukraine, things are going to get worse in Ukraine. Things are going to get worse for all their, their neighboring countries. Um, and then there's then there's the bureaucratic understanding that this this can't stand. I mean, of, of course, it should be now. It should have been before now. Um, but but I clearly Biden being who he is, it's, it's not going it, to that an attempt, a real attempt at a pivot is, I think, still some ways off. OK, so now it's time for us to take on the right. Um, uh, I will confess that I've, we have forborne a little bit in, in going at this subject directly for a long time because it involves an old colleague. A lot of the opinions here uh, involve a, an old colleague and friend of ours, Sora Mamari, who worked for commentary until 2018, 20, I can't even remember when, uh, uh, left us and then became one of the leaders of this NatCon uh the the nationalist conservative right um and uh i didn't want to get into a broigus with him and i didn't want to have fights with him 
uh, or you know, or or sort of have a kind of uh, splitter thing. But uh, but we are now in a position in which we see him and J.D. Vance and others, and Tucker Carlson, who is kind of riding some weird NatCon wave, um, siding with Putin effectively siding with Putin. I mean, there are two ways in which America stinks and shouldn't go, uh, go do anything outside the country because uh, we're, we're bad and we have uh, terrible values and we've done nothing but have these idiot forever wars led by you know evil neocon liberals, liberal neocons, whatever you want to call it, that were all bad and everything was bad and everything is bad. And um, uh, this is the world they want to see. Uh, the world they want to see is a world in which Putin starts moving into Ukraine and and uh, and and uh, from both uh, aspects, one of which is we don't do enough to stop it. So we're weak. So we're showing we're weak because we don't do enough to stop it. And uh, Putin's going into Ukraine and we don't stop it because um, he's kind of in the right. Like, uh, why shouldn't he? Who are we to stop him? Uh, we have no moral standing, number one. And number two, he's just doing what we should be doing, which is defending his national interest uh, without, you know, and trying to win. Because the problem with the right, according to the NatCon right, is that the right has no formula for winning. And, and we need to win in our own way and, you know, dominate our enemies uh, domestically. And Well, that's the, your, number three, I think, is their biggest point, which is that this is all a distraction for what we really need to fix, which is the erosion of our morality at home and the helping out uh, of, of the average American worker and uh, relieving them of, uh, of the opioid crisis and uh, they're, they're not making enough money and working conditions and, and, and all the rest of it. it it's that that is the historical core of historic core of populism is, you know, let's not, why are we wasting our attention on those people over there? They are, they are materially taking away from what you have here. Also in a, to a philosophical degree that sort of dovetails with that point is, <clears throat> you know, the Putins and the Orbans of the world, and even China to a lesser degree have no tolerance for the kind of cultural uh, liberalism that has that so predominates their thinking about just about everything a framework that they view every event through that they you know they don't tolerate transgenderism and lgbtqpa whatever rights and all, half a dozen other issues that just that they can they cannot see past so these these leaders represent the sort of um you know, epochal view of uh, of traditionalist masculinity that they think the United States should also embody. Right. And, uh, you know, the important point here is that um, uh, they believe that any uh, conservative efforts to oppose uh, radical transformational politics in the United States uh, that does not I don't know how to, you know, go into sort of scorched earth. Everything is terrible. Is effectively siding with the enemy is like being Tokyo Rose. David French is is the problem, not just part of the problem, or that he's an apology for the problem, but that uh, you know David French um, believing in civility or civil discourse is evil. We cannot have civil discourse with these people. What we need to do is destroy them, leave them utterly destroyed on the ground, and then we will take over. The problem is 
uh, we're not going to take over. That's, They're not going to. That's take the over. question. This is the question that you're that we have to fundamentally answer because I, I don't know if they're onto something because literally every carnival barker in the conservative movement has adopted this position that Putin is either good or not an issue or sort of good and not an issue at the same time. Um, and I don't know who they're speaking to. Maybe they have their finger on the pulse of the right, but it's not evident in polling. It hasn't been for months. Right. Well, you said they were carnival barkers. And the point about carnival barkers is uh, they're low lowlifes who don't make a lot of money. I mean, let, let's just put it this way. They are not transformational figures who take over the world. A carnival barker goes from town to town hustling morons selling snake oil. I should say that I'm not talking about our colleague or our friend. I'm talking about people like Candace Owens and Charlie. It's Kirk. okay. You can say he, uh, yeah, they, well, there are those guys, right? Then there are intellectual snake oil salesmen of which he and a lot of the NatCons uh, represent a form of, intel of, of intellectual snake oil salesmanry in which, uh, in which somehow John Locke, the creator of modern creator of modern freedom or one of the creators of the idea of freedom in the modern age is bad is evil. And there's some guy named Schmelkin who came, who wrote a book in 1611 that no one ever read, who actually created the West and not John Locke. Schmoygen, Schmelsky. Here it is. It's a 12-page document that someone dug up out of a library in, you know, in, in Blafinia. And Yoram Hazoni, who hasn't lived in America for 85 years, finds this document and it proves definitively that the Enlightenment was bad. And now, just like Putin says that Kievan Rus is Russia, all of Western history needs to be rewritten. So if the Enlightenment is bad and Schmoiglin's treatise of 1642 is the document that runs things that is snake oil that is sophistry think, i don't think the snake oil comparison is apt because the snake oil salesman doesn't believe in snake oil i think they believe this yeah they believe it or they don't believe it it doesn't matter what they believe is their current cause and they're looking for you know they they begin with their prior <laughs> And then they find, you know, evidence to justify it. Um, and maybe it's not snake oil, but it's being swallowed like snake oil by a bunch of, uh, you know, suits uh, who are, you know, want to find some argument that says that everything that has gone on in America since 1776 that they don't like. Uh, and by the way, that doesn't include the really bad things about America since 1776, like slavery, like, you know, somehow it's not that. It's not that that's not really their 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 pressing concern is, you know, America's great original sin. It's other stuff, you know, like an inability to impose a national religion or something like that. I don't even know. But, uh, you know, now that now that we are talking about this, I'm exploding out in all directions in a way that is a little incoherent. But what I'm saying is snake oil salesmen, carnival barkers work uh, in small towns in small bore. And uh, as wildly successful as Tucker Carlson is, and he is, and he's someone I've known for, you know, 20, I hired him uh, at the Weekly Standard. I was his first serious editor. Uh, you know, I've known him since he was a kid and he's wildly successful and he's way more successful than I am and all of that. But what he has is 3 million viewers. He has, doesn't have 20 million viewers. He doesn't have 40 million viewers. He has 3 million viewers. That's way more than Rachel. That's not way more. It's like significantly more than Rachel Maddow has. And it's way more than Chris Cuomo had. But it's still 3 million people in a nation of 330 million. 
Now, that is snake oil. That is selling snake oil. We don't look at somebody who gets 1% of the vote and say they're really on to something. If he, had a, if he had a show that had 30 million people watching it, we could say he was on to something. If he runs for president in 2024 and wins 30 states, we can say he's on to something. And now we should now turn to Trump. Let's, let's move off this and talk about what Trump said yesterday that is making everybody's head explode. And once again, I find myself in the bizarre position of feeling like uh, the never Trumpers whom, with whom I'm philosophically in a certain amount of sympathy are all bananas and have no capacity to sort to, they're taking what he said at face value and not understanding what it was that he said when he said, you gotta give Putin credit, this was a really smart play. Right. It's basically what he said. He was like being a sports announcer. He's like saying that he was going in to protect the poor people of 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 the uh, of the of these regions and then saying that they needed to be countries on their own because they were they were so defenseless. That's you know, you got to hand it to him. Uh, you know, it's a good it's good spin. Um, it is. What, what I granted, he's the former president of the United States. He shouldn't be, you know, he shouldn't be like talking like a sports commentator. But um, he didn't say anything that a smart pundit writing an op-ed couldn't have said, which is that Putin, as we sort of said in the first half hour here of this show, Putin saying something that has resonance with his audience, which is a Russian domestic audience, and uh, and. It's it's smart. And then Trump did say he'd never have done this if I were president. I can tell you that right now. He never would have done this if I were president. I don't know if that's true, but, you know, you have simultaneously the never Trumpers like go, reeling in outrage at him saying that this was a smart thing, a smart spin that Putin put on it. And then also saying I would never allowed him to do it. I would have stopped him. Uh, and, you know, Biden's too weak to stop him. I think you're being yeah, very I charitable. Uh, to the to a degree that gives him more credit than he deserves. The quote is, Putin is now saying it's independent, a large section of Ukraine. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper, the strongest peace force I've ever seen. There were more tanks, army tanks than I've ever seen. They're going to keep peace. All right. No, but think of it. Here's a guy who is very savvy um, that that gives that's not just play by play, you know, color commentary. Uh, he's adopting the language of Moscow, which materially degrades American interests. Um, and it's a reckless misuse of his influence and authority. I don't, I don't agree blank. with it's you. Not, right? It's also not new. This is exactly what he did in Abkhazia and South Ossetia. So it just suggests that he doesn't have any idea what he's talking about and just cuts off like a tanky idiot Putin whenever he has a mic in front of him. Uh, I, I don't agree with that reading. <clears throat> I think when he's saying, <clears throat> excuse me, Look at look at the size of the of the force. They're going to keep peace. All right. I think that's his way of saying, yeah, sure. They're there to keep peace. I think I, I don't I don't think he's I don't think. He's, OK, so we have um, to go into this Talmudic analysis about whether he's genuinely supportive of this or he's just commentating on it. That's that. That's gen. That's a genuine bad thing to do. It, it degrades American national interests. He it is said lower than that he position. would have stopped it from happening were he still president. So I don't know how you can look at that and then say that he supports it. He said he would have stopped it. He said he would have stopped it. Biden's weak. He did it because Biden's weak. Now I actually don't believe that he did it because Biden's weak. 
He said, I knew that he always wanted Ukraine. I used to talk to him about it. You can't do that. You're not going to do that. But I would, I would, I could see that he wanted it. I used to ask him. We used to talk about it at length. That's all he said on the subject. No, no, no. There's more. Sorry. He said he, he said he would have stopped them. Where is that? I mean, I, I read it. I don't know. I don't have the quote in front of me. But he said it before. He said he said that that this wouldn't happen under him before. And it didn't. Not that I not that I'm willing to give him the credit that Putin didn't do it because, you know, there are many reasons why Putin might not have done it before now. We don't know whether he was building up various things. We don't know what the domestic considerations are to let him to move. Certainly, I do believe and we all believe, I think, that some kind of a signal was given to him or he read some kind of signal in Biden's weakness on Afghanistan that said, the time to move is now because, you know, look what he just did. I mean, I don't know that he'll, he'll have the stomach to oppose me, really. And do we think that this first, as he called it, Biden said, the first tranche of sanctions that Biden talked about, do we think that this is was a good opening salvo that by should Biden have like, you know, unleashed fire and fury and hell right at the outset? Uh or, you know, if he really thinks that this is going on to full on invasion and there, there's going to be this like shelling of you know, he's going to bomb Kiev and arrest people and all of that. What is he waiting for? He's going to be, oh, you just shelled, you just shelled, killed 10,000 people in a, in the middle of a city. Now we're going to sanction another bank and cut your money off. I don't know. What do you guys think? I, maybe maybe there's something I'm missing. Like they don't they're building it up. They want to have it as a relentless kind of choking. They want to slowly choke him. I mean, I don't I don't <clears throat> I don't think there's room anymore to to for that kind of thinking. I mean, I, I I'm absolutely in favor of fire and fury now. And then as things progress uh depending on the response you invent new ways to get at putin this is i mean this is part of what we talked about yesterday with there you know with 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 eli lake there needs to be a new paradigm here so let's get to exhausting this one because we we we've seen where it's gotten us oh by the way i found the quote that uh, uh just to support my, myself uh from that interview with buck sexton um uh, what Trump said, by the way, this never would have happened with us had I been in office, not even thinkable. This would never have happened. But here's a guy that says, you know, I'm going to declare a big portion of Ukraine independent. He used the word independent and we're going to go out and we're going to go in and we're going to help keep peace. You got to say that's pretty savvy. And you know what the response was from Biden? There was no response. They didn't have one for that. No, it's very sad. It's very sad. So um, anyway, uh it's an interesting question. He is the former president of the United States and he shouldn't be, you know, like being a pundit at this incredibly serious moment, maybe, but he is Trump. And what matters is what he says. And I don't, if it, if he was, he's admiring of Putin's ballsiness and he's admiring of his spin. He's also saying, if I were president, Putin would not be going into Ukraine right now. He's not saying I would have let him go. Of course, he's so great. Look at this brilliant thing he did. You know what? He wins the argument. He gets to take Ukraine. He's saying I would have stopped him. 
there's no, you know, there's no counterproof, right? Uh, and well, he uh, didn't say I'm going to stop him. He said it wouldn't have happened. Fair enough. Look, this right. subject to ambiguity. The problem is, is that this guy is an absolute menace who absorbs far too much of our intellectual energy when there is an international crisis of epic proportions on, and we shouldn't be engaging in Talmudic analysis of what this radio caller says. Right. I agree, but I'm not, but the, you know, he says something and then, you know, uh, this then leads Charlie Sykes and Ann Applebaum and people like that to go, thank God Biden's in office and not this guy. And I don't know if that's how you can read well, to be even more the fair, last 96 hours. Yeah. I mean, huh? no, literally no yeah. one was uh, precisely no one said anything to which this chorus responds. Well, thank God Joe Biden's in office. Cause what, what would have happened to Donald Trump was here a very insecure, totally unsolicited defense of this guy's record, which needs defending, obviously, because they can't contend with the simple fact that what's happening now just didn't happen. I mean, look, there's a certain type of nicety that no longer exists in American politics, right? There's an international crisis. And so you should let the president do what the president is going to do. And there should be a unified front at home. And everybody should stand behind him, at least in the early going to give him a chance to have an American, to have it look like America's behind him. And the RNC is already attacking Biden and making fun of him, turning his back and walking away from the camera after the speech yesterday. And then Michael Steele says, this is not unpatriotic. And Larry Tribe says, Tucker Carlson should be tried for treason and blah, 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 right? So uh, yes, there was a time in which it would have been Biden's incredibly serious. They're meeting. We don't know what they know. We should all remain quiet and support America's efforts to retard this. And then after a couple of months, when when it's clear, if it were clear that the measures being taken by the American president and the and 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 the world community were um, inadequate or uh, impotent or something like that, then the guns come out blazing. And then you have the political opposition saying, these guys have failed us. We need a change in leadership. You know, we need Republicans to be in charge of the Senate and the House to block that or to make them see reason and all of that. And we're, we don't have that anymore. And so it allows for this distraction, which is people to start fighting over what Trump's saying, which actually does give Biden a pass, is a weird way of giving Biden a pass. Like as long as they're talking about Trump, they're not talking about Biden. And the only thing really to talk about is Biden. I'm not willing yet to say that Biden, despite the fact of my saying he doesn't know how to rally the people and all that, I'm not willing to say that the measures that are being taken aren't incredibly severe. I don't really understand them. And again, if he's got he's got secondary and tertiary sanctions that are going to be tougher, including, as we talked about the other day, whether or not he deploys uh, or convinces uh, others in the West to cut Russia off from the SWIFT banking communication system. I'm not willing to say that we are not in a position to cause Russia extreme pain and make this really hard on Putin yet. Um, I'm willing to believe it's not going to happen. And I I, I have no faith in in Biden really pulling the trigger here and doing what would be necessary to do. But we don't know yet that that won't happen. But, you know, that's the kind of wussy, liberal enlightenment thinking that destroyed America. What you just heard there is what the NatCons will say about what I just said. We need to win. And Again, I don't know what it is they want to win. 
they seem to want a Catholic theocracy in the United States, which is an interesting trend, by the way. I will finish with this, which is that uh, Saurabh and Adrian Vermeule and others, you know, sort of have this, as I say, they want this kind of like rule of the common good, which is effectively some form of, you know, Catholic catechism. Is this the Pope that they want to be uh, the, you know, the, the theocrat of the world? He seems to be more liberal than Biden. So I don't know what it is that they, why they're, why, why they're surrendering us to the depredations of Pope Francis. <laughs> yes, I said it. My colleagues are being properly silent at my, <laughs> at my know-nothing anti-papism. Anyway, I, we will. Um, I, I'm not, though. Uh, I'm a huge admirer of the Catholic Church. I'm just not a big fan of Francis's. Anyway, before I get myself into even more trouble, we will call a halt to the proceedings today, and we'll be back to you tomorrow for Abe and Noah and the Absent Christine. I'm John Podhoritz. Keep the candle burning. <laughs>